uh, listening to God's call to love one another. And we have thought about four key ways to express and demonstrate that love. And so today, at this halfway point in our series, I want to do uh, two things. One, I want to press pause and review progress so far or to date. And secondly, I want to consider a number of alternatives. I'd like us to look at a few of the what not to do to one another. Because as well as all these positives, the Bible also warns us about the negatives. To be aware of those things which actually threaten to destroy and wreck authentic Christian community. And to kind of root out ways of behaving towards one another which undermine our witness and actually contradict our claims that we belong to Jesus. And so I want to spend about the next 20 minutes or so reflecting on how not to relate to one another. But as we press pause and review progress, let me ask you a question. How are you getting on? How are you getting on? Having looked at these four, what has shifted in your thinking and in your behavior in the past month? Who have you recently forgiven and why? Have you been able to identify at least one other Christian who you could confess your sins to on a regular basis? And have you begun to do that? Who have you been praying for this week? And how did you serve a Christian brother or sister in need during the past few days? You see, Windsor Baptist will only ever become a loving community and grow as such as and whenever we embrace and live the teaching of Scripture. As James puts it in his short epistle, do not merely listen to the word, but do what it says. And the love that we have been kind of exploring and pursuing, it requires action. It needs doing. It needs legs. So how are we getting on? What has changed? What is changing in your life and mine and in this church's life as a result of our reading of God's word? Are we sensing a difference in here and in here as a result of looking at these four one another's? Well, I hope and pray we are and we will. But for now, I kind of want us to look at the flip side. I want to come at this from a slightly different angle and perspective because scattered throughout the New Testament and, and often set alongside all this advice on how we should relate to one another are a selection of attitudes and ways of behaving that we are told to stop. We're actually told to root out of our community life together. And so I am going to look at six things we shouldn't do to one another. Now there's a real danger here of this sermon 
uh, coming across as rather negative or even a potential rant, right? Now, neither of those are my intention. I kind of hope you know me better enough by now. I am just really keen to face up to the reality of God's word and take seriously the challenge of how not to react and and how not to behave in certain ways. So in a sense, let the negativity begin. So the first couple of things that we shouldn't do are actually found in our reading from last Sunday. Galatians chapter 5 Verses 13 to 15 is page 1172 in the Pew Bibles. And if you were here last week, we talked about our God-given freedom in Christ. And what I said was this, as Christians, we're free. Absolutely, totally, completely, 100% free. But with freedom comes responsibility. Especially with regard to how we interact with one another. And in verse 13, Paul stresses the need to serve one another humbly in love. It's what we thought about last week and we teased out what that looks like and we reflected on the example of Jesus who didn't come to be served but to serve. But in verse 15, have a look at it. The Apostle Paul identifies two alternative ways of behaving towards one another that relate to how we speak to and about one another and these are two things that we need to get rid of. So, as we often do at Winter Baptist, let's stand for the public reading of God's word. Galatians 5, 13 to 15. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Grab a seat. If you keep on biting and devouring each other. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice, the first thing that I want you to get is that this was happening. And it still can. Paul writes, if you keep on. You know, just because someone is a believer, just because someone is part of a local church, whether it's in Galatia or Belfast, they can still do untold damage to lives and relationships via their words and speech. Christians can still tear each other to shreds. And although there is a far better way to enhance and enrich community life, which Paul stresses in verse 13, we can still choose to ignore that advice. Listen, we're free. Free. Don't have to serve one another humbly in love. I'm still free to indulge the sinful nature. I can continue to bite and devour you. It's madness, but it's possible. Now, before we take a closer look at those two words, and we clearly need to, because at face value, they do sound a bit extreme, biting and devouring. It sounds like a bad morning in creche. (laughs) But what I want you to do is, I want you to look at the consequences of this behavior. Look at the end of verse 15. Total destruction. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, says Paul, you will be destroyed by each other. And I guarantee you we've all seen it. I certainly have seen it. Where words have been used and exchanged and spoken against Christians which hurt. 
And amongst Christians, which leave a mark, they leave a lasting impression. And they've not only thrown relationships into disarray in the short term, but they have severely damaged any prospect of long-term relationship. And so Paul's advice here is gold dust. But what does it actually mean to bite and devour? What is Paul referring to and warning us against? I mean, if it's not literal cannibalism, and it certainly isn't, what is he talking about? Well, the biting is backbiting and backstabbing. Talking about someone in derogatory terms whenever they're not around to hear what is being said, challenge what is being said, or to be given the opportunity to defend what is being said. It's so tempting. Let's be honest, it's so tempting, isn't it, to pursue a conversation about someone whenever their back is turned, whenever they're out of earshot. A one-line comment A few words that subtly deconstruct that person. Deconstruct their character, their reputation. But you know something? It's cowardly and it's never constructive. And it only dismantles them. And it destabilizes any sense of community and relationship. And we should not do it. And devouring is similar, only it's more intense It's kind of where you make a meal of it or you make a meal of them. It's not about taking a quick bite, a cheap shot behind someone's back. It's about literally pulling them apart. The translation implies leaving only ruin without hope. This is where you don't hold back. You play fast and loose with your words and you leave behind a trail of destruction. Remember, this is written to Christians. And in Christian community, this shouldn't happen, but it can keep happening clearly. If you keep on, says Paul. So he highlights the danger. And so this morning, church, let us not bite and devour one another. Why? Because it will destroy you and it will destroy this place. Next set of things. That we shouldn't do come in a kind of triplet form. And they're found right at the end of the same chapter. Have a look at the very last verse of chapter 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Now Paul has just finished listing The nine segments of the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Which he has set in almost complete contrast to the 16 plus acts of the sinful nature. Sexual immorality, outbursts of anger, hostility, jealousy, division, etc. As Christians and as a Christian community, it would be absolutely brilliant if our default position, each and every time it came to relating to one another and doing life together, that our default position would be that we would grab hold of an action or a reaction or an attitude from that list of the fruit of the Spirit, from one of the nine segments. It would be brilliant if we did that every time. 
But as Paul writes to Christians in Galatia and therefore to us in Belfast, he identifies the very real tension that now exists within our hearts and minds. Paul refers to this internal conflict that rages between the spirit and what he's doing and what he's producing in our lives and the sinful nature, which hasn't totally gone away, irrespective of how long you've been a Christian. Our sinful nature still has potential. It still has influence on each and every one of us. And so, you have a choice to make. Or to be more accurate, we have daily choices to make. Either we use our God-given freedom, which we all have. We use our God-given freedom to do one of two things. Indulge the sinful nature. Or live by the Spirit. As Paul urges us to do in verse 16. Or keep in step with the spirit. As he advises us to do in verse 25. So here's the question. Which of these two lists. Are more readily reflected and recognized. In our individual lives. And our corporate life at Windsor Baptist. Which list? Well. From my understanding of scripture. Time will tell. Because either we will be a church that shows love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc., etc., or it's our choice. We will be a church that sows seeds of division and discord, that gives in to bouts of jealousy and fits of rage. Because how we relate to one another reflects the choices we're making. But as Paul finishes this little section of vital teaching, he sounds a final warning about how not to relate to one another. How we can, things that we must avoid if we're going to keep in step with the Spirit. Do not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Which when you think about it, are recipes for disaster in any community. But what does it actually mean? Do not become conceited or in slightly alternative language, let us not be desirous of vain glory. And again, what I really want to stress is that Paul is writing to Christians. And so this is a genuine issue and temptation that are confronted by those who've been born again of the Spirit of God, by all believers. We are all susceptible to this community wrecker. So what is it? How would you define conceit? What does it look like in a human life? Well, let me offer you a few different related definitions that hopefully help us get a handle on this. At a very basic level, conceit is defined as delusions of grandeur. This is where you think you're much greater, more powerful, and more influential than you really are. Taking the definition a little further, it refers to someone who is ambitious of being thought wiser, richer, and more valuable than others. It's the kind of person who gets ahead of themselves, who gets above their station, and wants to be thought of and seen of as better than the next person, or certainly better than those around them. Well, let me give you an even fuller definition, and maybe is this, this is where it really gets to me, because I recognize its danger And it's constant temptation in my own life. Conceit 
is a perceived absence of honor and glory that drives a person to prove his worth to himself and others and causes them to live in a state of comparing themselves to others. You ever do that? Ever compare yourself to those around you? And I reckon, and maybe in particularly in today's culture, even more so than Paul's, this constant comparing ourselves to others is endemic. Beyond these walls, within these walls, there is this constant temptation to look around at others and compare yourself. And then you end up doing one of two things. Either you feel superior or you feel inferior. You feel better than, you feel not as good as. Now, whenever we think we're better, pride kicks in. In fact, for some people, conceit and pride are one and the same thing. And going back to our verse from Galatians 5, do not be conceited, provoking each other. There's absolutely no doubt that whenever someone thinks they're better than others, they're superior to others, then they easily provoke those around them. Pride, and I've shared this thought before, is the only disease that makes everyone sick except the person that has it. But in all honesty, it doesn't just make us sick. It provokes us to anger. A conceited person, I'll guarantee you this, a conceited person winds us up. Really gets under our skin. And stirs up all kinds of unhelpful, unchristlike, sinful feelings within each and every one of us. And therefore it not only damages self-conceit, but it definitely damages community. Because when someone is, has conceit, it provokes us to anger. We want to slap them. So don't become conceited and don't provoke your brothers and sisters to anger. Now on the other hand, whenever you compare yourself to those around you, you may end up feeling incredibly inferior. Less than. Not as good as. And what is the upshot of that tendency? Well, it's there again in verse 16. What do you do? You become envious. Whenever you compare yourself to others and you feel inferior, you begin to envy what they have. Their gifts and their abilities. The natural gifts they have, the spiritual gifts they have. And as we all know, envy is so destructive. Proverbs tells us that envy rots your bones. Simple as that. Envy eats away at you from the inside. And picking up on this thought, John Chrysotom wrote, as a moth gnaws a garment, so doth envy consume a man. But you know something? Envy, again, doesn't just damage me. It doesn't just damage my heart. It puts our relationships with one, on, one another under constant strain. So don't be conceited. Don't provoke and envy each other. In a nutshell, don't compare. Don't compete. Don't consume one another. Don't compare, don't compete, don't consume one another. Now, all that's very well and good to say in stress. But how do you avoid it? This is relevant to us as churches, us as Christians. How do you actually avoid it? How do you guard against it in here and in here? Well, let's look at a key comment from another of Paul's letters. A verse and a phrase that I've quoted many times and I intend to quote many, many, many more times. Because you can never overplay it and its relevance here is undeniable. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. C.S. Lewis said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That is a subtle but significant difference. We spent quite a bit of time talking about humility last week, but here it is again. And whenever we think about pride, whenever we think about conceit, the virtue that addresses that particular vice is humility. And humility is the attitude of Jesus that we must embrace as we relate to one another. Humility cuts across and completely disables conceit and pride because it saves us from comparing ourselves to others and instead it encourages us to value others above ourselves. In a dog-eat-dog-me-obsessed world, that is never easy. And therefore, we've got to be intentional about pursuing and nurturing this attitude. It does not come naturally. It doesn't. And therefore, you've got to choose this way of life. You've actually got to choose to go after it, which is why, and I tried to make this point last week, and I don't know if I did very effectively. But whenever the Bible talks about humility, very often it says, balls in your court. Balls in your court. You have got to seek humility. You have got to clothe yourself with humility. You've got to put it on. You've got to dress yourself in this. And you've got to humble yourself. Because those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so when it comes to loving one another, do not be conceited, provoking and envying each other. And for me, the first step in avoiding that problem, those three problems, is to pursue humility. But there's another antidote, and I've kind of referred to this already, but there's another antidote, another cure that for this bacteria that eats away at loving Christian community. And Paul shares it in verse 25. Since we say we live by the Spirit, and then he says this. It's always been a phrase that has intrigued me. Since we live by the Spirit, and here's where for me it's back into, right, my responsibility. Keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step. With the Spirit. And I don't have time to do this justice. But what does Paul mean when he tells us to keep in step with the Spirit? Because although we live by the Spirit, we've been born again by the Spirit of God and he now lives in us. There's a definite sense, I feel, that what Paul is saying here is that you can get out of the step with the Spirit and you can start tripping over your own feet. So how do we avoid that? Well... Based on what Paul has been teaching regarding the sinful nature and the spirit and the conflict that exists, surely to keep in step with the spirit means to walk in a way that is consistent with a spirit-led life. Can I say that again? To keep in step with the spirit means to walk in a way that is consistent with a spirit-led life. How is a spirit-led life characterized and verbalized and demonstrated? Simple. Via love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You see, whenever those things are increasingly visible in a life, for me, 
that proves that someone is keeping in step with the Spirit. When I meet someone who's patient and who's kind, who's joyful, loves life, self-controlled, faithful, good. Well, for me, that is someone who's keeping in step with the Spirit. When I hear people backbiting, tearing each other apart, becoming conceited, provoking each other to anger, envying, for me, you're tripping over their own feet. If that sounds too simplistic, then that's what I am. (laughs) So do not compare, do not compete, do not consume. And if you're serious about loving one another, you'll pursue humility, you'll keep in step with the Spirit. These nine segments will be visible and will flourish in your life and in your relationships and that will leave little or no room for the negatives. That's five things, one more. Then we're done. Do not judge. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. I want to go to Romans 14 for this. Do you know it's so easy and tempting to do this as well? You observe someone's life, you hear something about someone, and you make a judgment call. And people do it all the time. But in Christian community, we cannot do it. We should not do it. And one of the things that will prevent us from judging one another is remembering that one day we're all going to have to stand before God, the ultimate and only judge, and give an account of our lives. So let me set this verse in context, because for me this is absolutely vital. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. That's what it says in Romans 14. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every knee. No exceptions to this. And every tongue will confess to God. Every tongue. So then, we will all give an account of our lives. No exceptions. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. It is never, ever our place to judge. John Stott, we have no warrant to climb on the bench, place our human beings in the dock and start pronouncing judgment and passing sentence because God alone is judge and we are not as we will all be forcibly reminded when the rules are reversed. In community and certain, certainly in Christian community, the tendency to judge one another is never going to foster and promote love. It will only ever create ill-feeling, tension, and suspicion. So, don't ever judge one another. Ever. By the way, it's different from admonishing. There's actually quite a key difference between judging and admonishing one another. But I think it's in about three weeks' time we're going to look at the difference. Now, I do realize that what I've shared this morning might have come across as incredibly negative, and as I say, a bit of a rant. But if we're going to love one another, which we've been commanded to do and urged to do, then alongside reflecting on what it looks like in a local community, I also believe it's important to look at what, look at what it doesn't look like. 
The New Testament isn't afraid to specify the negatives as well as the positives. So, Windsor Baptist, do not bite and devour one another. Do not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Do not pass judgment on one another. And may God help us to enhance and embrace the positives and avoid the negatives.